I was in a small place in Uganda called Fort Porto, which is my husband's home place. We were going to leave that day and the army turned up and looking for me and my husband would just not let them take me. So they took him. It was awful. Even now when I think about it, for years I had nightmares because there was two army men at his head with, with rifles and two pointing at his stomach. They forcibly took him in a jeep. That's Canadian Senator Mobina Jaffer recalling when Ugandan dictator Idi Amin expelled that country's South Asian population, including her own family, 50 years ago this month. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. In August 1972, Idi Amin, military dictator of Uganda, surprised the world with this announcement. I have already decided that all Asians must leave Uganda. I think Uganda will benefit if Asians are out of Uganda, because Asians have been milking Uganda's money. The South Asian population, 80,000 people in all, were given 90 days to get out of the country or else. Lives, families and businesses that were established in Uganda for generations were torn apart in a matter of weeks. It was the start of a descent into hell for that Central African country. The economy collapsed, a reign of terror by Amin, nicknamed the Butcher of Uganda, saw hundreds of thousands lose their lives. More than 6,000 of the Asians expelled by Amin came to Canada, restarting their lives here, some as early as September 1972. One of those is our guest today, Mobina Jaffer. Her story is both terrifying and inspiring as she and her young family escaped to re-establish themselves in Canada, where she began a long and successful career as a lawyer and politician, working closely especially with Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, and dedicating her career, unsurprisingly, to the plight of refugees. Senator Mobina Jaffer, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. And as we were chatting about, I spent a lot of time in that part of East Africa and spent time in Uganda, but I lived in Nairobi for six years and I have very fond memories of it. And I think for a lot of people, they might be surprised to learn that there's was and is still a large South Asian population in that part of the world. And your own family roots go back fairly far there too. So tell me a bit about your family in Uganda and, and what, what that community was like. So, you know, my mother was born in Nairobi. Oh, wow. And uh, so and every, every holiday we would go and visit my grandparents and go to Nakuru and all those places. Beautiful. So, uh, even before independence. So, But my father was born in Kampala, Uganda. Oh, wow. And his, gra- his father came from India. Mm-hmm. Uh, when was you know, that? From, from Gujarat. I can't tell you exactly now, but in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And then my father was born in Uganda, in, Uga- in fact, in Bombo in Uganda, but mm-hmm. in Kampala, he was raised in Kampala. And I was born in Kampala too. And my father was a member of parliament in Uganda. And so wow. uh, politics runs in our blood. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And you were born, so the, the, the expulsion of the Asians community happened in 1972. You were an adult by then. You really grew up in Uganda, and that really was a part of who you were fundamentally. Yeah, and it's still who am I am, and I still love Uganda, and uh, go there as much as I can. But obviously Canada now is my home, and I love Canada too. 
So yeah. I have two homes now. <laughs> yeah. The thing that really impressed me about the South Asian community in that part of the world was the work they did to establish themselves there. When I think about U- Uganda, you know, the railway from Mombasa to Uganda was mostly built by South Asians. And I, I had friends who had grandparents or great-grandparents who ran trading posts in the most remote parts of sort of, of Uganda and just uh, really like enterprising people. And I'm just wondering what your memories of that community was when you were young growing up there. So now it's just sort of stories of the family that my grandfather went everywhere and, you know, built small businesses. But then, uh, then our family business grew very big. My, you know, we had cotton ginneries and coffee factories and blanket factories. And so my family, um, my dad and his brothers really grew, uh, grew their businesses. And so they were very established. And then uh, in 1969, when the Pope was coming to Uganda for the first time, it was an mm-hmm. amazing time for us. My father was a, also a municipal member. Um, I was asked by the mayor because my father had a his family had a big uh, property and, uh, in, in Kampala. If, if he, he would consider converting that property into a hotel for the Pope's staff. Oh, wow. So that's how my father, now it's, it's a, a very established hotel called the Fairway Hotel. And, but, uh, so that's how it started with the Pope coming to Uganda for the first time. And wow. so my father was very enterprising, very enterprising. And then when he came to Canada... We had nothing. He started working on an egg farm, picking eggs. And then Eugene Valen, who was a minister whom my father had met as a member of parliament before, mm-hmm. uh, suggested to him, why are you working there? You know, buy one. And my dad said, I have no money. And at that time, the government had grants. Mm. And so my father got a grant and he bought an egg farm. And when he died, he was one of a very large egg farmer in, in B.C. So... Uh, that's what you did in BC. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'd love to get to that transition in a second. But if you can talk about, so independence for Uganda came when, early 60s, right? Is that? 1963. 1963. Yeah. And that's a lot of, a lot of the African yeah. colonies at that point were being, yeah, yeah being granted independence. And there's a, a large, I mean, it's 80,000, I think, uh, South Asians living. Yes. Yeah, many, tens of thousands of them are actually Ugandan citizens after yes. independence. So what do you remember in the lead up to then this expulsion of the, the, like almost the entire Asian population by, by Idi Amin, who we should say is a, a dictator, and I think most people will know the name, but notorious. So because my father was in politics, and so I remember growing up and then with us uh, being sort of uh, uh, involved in politics with Milton Obote, President Milton Obote, mm-hmm. and uh, then when President Milton Obote went to the Commonwealth Conference, it's our version of it that he was very aggressive with England and uh, Canada and others about South Africa, and so he was uh, he was overthrown. And Idi Amin, his uh, uh, ch- uh, chief of defense, was put in power. Now. Uh, for us, uh, a family that knew Idi Amin very well, uh, we know that Idi Amin was put in that place because uh, he, we all thought of him as, so, so, including Abote, as not a smart man, and he would not try and overthrow Idi Amin. And so, when Idi Amin became president, 
uh, for many days he would come to our at lunchtime to our house and he would keep asking my dad, "Am I the president? Am I really the president?" He, he himself wow. couldn't believe it. Wow! And from that, uh, then slowly his power grew. He wasn't that. He, uh, in, he wasn't the Idi Amin when we first knew him that he became later on. And then he became very, very greedy and powerful. And the th- sad part is there was no accountability because he was ruthless. He was just ruthless. My mother worked uh, as a social worker and a probation officer. And one of her jobs was to visit prisons. And mm-hmm. in, in our country at that time, we had whippings and hangings. And my mother sadly had to as a probation officer, witnessed that. And so she would come back and say, you know, it's gone really bad now. You know, people, there are no bullets, so people are being killed with hammers. And she'd come back very upset. Oh my God. And so that was sort of the beginning of when we well, were starting to get worried. But yeah. it wasn't worried that we would be expelled. That was mm-hmm. never, ever in our, in our psyche. We thought we would go through a difficult period. And then in June... 1972 my so in 1971 I got married at my father's hotel at the fairway and I came back to England to continue my studies and then in 1972 um, in June before everything else happened the army whom my dad was very connected to uh, warned him that uh, in fact the man that he had helped put through university warned him that Idi Amin's goons are coming for you tonight, so you better disappear. And a lot of my dad's friends had started disappearing. And so my dad, he's never really told us, but he escaped. But for us, my mother was happily in England at that time with us, and we were phoned that my, that my dad had been killed. And that was even today when I think about it, it was just the most horrible thing for us. But luckily, luckily for us, the next day my dad knocked on the door and of, of my place. And, oh my God, we couldn't believe our eyes. And he had escaped and come to England. So our problem started in June 1972. But, you know, now sitting here in the comfort of my law office in Vancouver, I can't even dream of why would I go back to Uganda I went back to Uganda to get my two younger sisters out with my husband. But then everything was like, you know, life was usual. Yeah, my dad had to run away, but Mm. none of us really ever even saw that uh, there was issues we would be expelled. And in August, while we were attending my brother-in-law's wedding, we heard an announcement that Idi Amin had asked all Asians to leave. And I can tell you that we were at a wedding and just from a personal fact, we both thought it was a joke. And tomorrow morning he was had a dream because we always used to joke, oh, Idi Amin had another dream. And so we thought it was a dream and in two, three days he'd calm down. But then as time went by, he did not calm down and he started building what he called internment camps and showed what would happen to us, and it, things became very difficult for us. And so my father didn't want me to stay one more day in Uganda because he was worried, since he'd escaped, that Idi Amin would come after me. And I was in a small place in Uganda Fort, called Fort Porto, which is my mm-hmm. husband's home place. We were going to leave that day, and the army turned up uh, looking for me, and my husband would just not let them take me, so they took him. Oh, wow. 
it, it was must have been very terrifying. Bad. Yeah. It was awful. Even now, when I think about, it, for years I had nightmares because there was two army men at his head with with rifles and two at his uh, pointing at his stomach, and they forcibly took him in a jeep, a very small jeep. And uh, the day before, another is Ismaili man had been taken to the army barracks, and sadly, we have still not heard from him even now, Mr. Hassan mm. Ali. We have not heard of him even now, and his family lives in Toronto. And so obviously we thought that was the end of my husband. And uh, uh, happily, the police turned up, well, we were lucky. The police turned up at the same time and the police were very close to my father-in-law and they insisted on taking him to the police barracks. And so and they took him to the police barracks and at the end of the day, happily, my husband left. Um, uh, came home that is like we are so fortunate and that just never happened before uh, because a person was taken away that disappeared that's gone and, you know that's the word we used oh they disappeared because we never found their bodies right and uh, it, and it was ju not just Asians it was Africans as well my husband came home and obviously the next day we left on the way to the airport and I'm sure you've heard because you've been in Uganda there were lots of challenges, a lot of challenges. But uh, because um, I knew a lot of people in Uganda and at the airport because of my dad, I was able to even get an escort to the plane so that nobody would harass yeah, us. Very lucky. Because, yeah. uh, with officials at the airport, you know. So we, we left and we happily arrived in England uh, and because that's where I was studying. Mm -hmm. And my husband and I were studying and then... My dad would not leave England until he said that the last refugee was settled. Now, I don't right. know if you know, but, uh, you know, we have had the Cadillac treatment. You know that. We've mm. had the Cadillac treatment. The whole of Europe opened up for us. And, you know, U.S. opened up, Australia opened up, and Canada as well. And, you know, we're not naive. We know that this happened because of His Highness the Aga Khan. And also his uncle, Prince Sadruddin, who was the High Commissioner of Refugees for the United Nations. Mm. And so the, we had really got, compared to what's happening to refugees now, it's embarrassing to even call us refugees because we really had the world open up and was very kind to us. But my dad said uh, he had decided to come to Canada because he believed, and, and he, he believed till he died, that Canada is a place where his grandchildren will not be deported, mm -hmm. not be, not the same fate will not happen to them. And you know he had opportunities to go to many other countries, but he chose Canada, and he'd been to Canada before, so he knew Canada really mm -hmm. well. And so uh, until every refugee, or practically all refugees from in Italy and in England, especially in England, were, uh, and he went to India to rescue some and bring them to England. And so he, we didn't leave. And then in 1974, mm -hmm. he, he came to Canada. And in 1975, I, my husband and I came to Canada. Can I ask you too, just about certainly the language around the expulsion of the, the Asian population? There was a lot of like enemies of Uganda sort of talking like stealing from Ugandans. And, you know, there was this whole this very violent populist language, which I think we're kind of now hearing echoes of again in our politics, unfortunately. And I'm just wondering what that was like. So, you know, 
as I keep saying this, but I'm grown around politics, and we know what happens with the language. Mm. Uh, there was a, a, a few people, I would say, that were riled up by Amin and his, uh, I call his goons, that would talk like that. I'm not naive. I know that because we are a well-settled community and uh, politicians, my dad always used to tell us, politicians can really use words to rile up a community. And so we. Well, I'm not naive. I know parts of the community were really riled up. Amin was building up this furor so that it would hasten our departure because I think for the first month after he said we had to leave, first you know, I said it in the beginning of August, third, I think, third of August, and until the end of August, we were really not getting the message that we had to leave, because you have to understand that this was our home. We had always thought of it as our home, and we had gone through some upheavals, yes, because we are a developing country, but we never ever thought that we would have to leave it. You know, I, I mean, until the last day, my dad was still expanding, and uh, we never thought that this, this is a place we would have to leave. Yes, my father was no longer an MP because Parliament had been dissolved, but it was our home. And, you know, it's so sad that even when I left, it, it was never thought that I was going permanently. Mm. It was all, I left things behind with people saying, when I come back, you know, I'll take this back from you. When I come mm. back and, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the two dogs we, my dad had, we thought about those dogs forever, and we gave enough money to feed the dogs. But we were so sure we would be back in a year or so, and then we would take over from where we were. But sadly, the reality wasn't that. And then till the still Museveni came to power, we never were able to go back. So mid-1980s then, really. Yeah. 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 And then mid-1980s, as soon as we were able to go back, my dad went back. He did. My dad went back right away. He he just could not. We were very unhappy him going back, but yeah. he said, "What will anybody do to me? That's my homeland." He went back, and he started building the schools. He had built a number of girls' schools, so he started building those and the mosques. If you went to Uganda, you would know Pandegea Mosque and Kibuli Mosque. The mm -hmm. big. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, my dad was instrumental in building those mosques. So he started repairing those, and he was again involved in the community. It wasn't the same because um, things had really changed in Uganda. No. But uh, obviously people remembered my dad and were very welcoming. And uh, I was very bitter because I just felt this was our homeland, and we, gave, we just really believed in it. And overnight we became stateless because we were Ugandans. And... Mm -hmm. uh, and my dad would keep telling me, you cannot, you cannot have that attitude because we were the lucky ones. Imagine going to a paradise, going to Canada, and uh, compared to what Africans faced in Uganda. And, you know, and then mm -hmm. only when I returned after many years to Uganda, I was humbled by seeing how much Africans had suffered. And so, you know, it's, uh, when we talk about expulsion, expulsion... I'm sure many people will not agree with me, but I know that it's been 50 years, so also the, the, um, the anger has calmed down within me. But, you know, when I look back, truthfully, Asians were very lucky with what happened to Africans who were left behind mm -hmm. was really, really bad. 
I know that my oh yeah, hundreds uh, of thousands of people died in hundreds of under thousands. Yeah, but you know, and that's why I really want people to understand that expulsion was part part of it, mm. but also the killing of thousands of Africans was yeah. also part of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so I, we were recalling before that you and I were on a trip into Darfur a long time ago, 2005, when that was a, a raging civil war going on there, horrible human rights abuses, and you were part of a, Prime Minister Paul Martin had a, you were a special envoy for peace, I think, in Sudan, and Romeo Dwyer was on that trip, and Ambassador Robert Fowler, but I remember at one point you took a, a break from the schedule one afternoon and said afterwards, um, it was stirring up memories of Uganda for you. I don't know if you recall that, it was a while ago, but I remember you being, it hitting you, I and mean, I'm sure there's a degree of PTSD still, even from that, from that original expulsion. Uh, for me, the big PTSD is even today uh, w when my dad had, we thought, disappeared. And then when my, my husband was picked up, those were two things that uh, to this day, you know, I find very difficult to forget. My husband mm -hmm. is better at it than I am, and he's mm -hmm. the one who suffered, right? right. But uh, I, because of me, he suffered. I didn't. He was not, he was not spared. But um, so those are hard things. But, you know, uh, as you know, I've gone to Uganda, uh, to East Africa a lot. And, you know, I uh, genuinely love the people. I love Ugandans. Uh, it's my, it was my home. My dad and mom brought us up to, to be Ugandans. So you can't forget that. And even now, I'm very involved with the Ugandan community here and in Parliament, and, and I'm the ambassador for Uganda, Canada Day. I spent it at the ambassador, Ugandan ambassador's house. Nice. But in Darfur, when you say it really hit me, it hit me because of the terrible things that were happening to the women. Yeah. And Mr. Christian appointed me in 2002 as to be the peace envoy to Darfur. Mm -hmm. And I have a story for you that part of that peace process, you know, there was an issue with the rebels, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Kony, and we felt that, you know, in southern Sudan, Kony was causing devastation, and I was working with many girls who's, who were terribly bruised, and so I, I had gone to Museveni, and I was working with Betty Bugongo to try and get uh, Kony pick, uh, uh, arrested. So this is and Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army. That's right, that's right. Famous he, he for... Yeah, brutalizing people and ch child soldiers and yeah. Yeah, things. and uh, you know the ch uh, the commuter children. He was uh, you know really uh, destroying the whole of northern Uganda, mm. and so I had gone to Uganda and I was meant to finish. So begin to, began to tell you that I met with President Museveni, mm. and he looked at me and looked at me and he said. You are Jaffer's daughter. You you look like Jaffer. I do completely look like my dad. <laughs> yeah. He said, "Yeah, I am." And then he just would look, and I thought, "Oh my God, what have I done? Offended him because I was." Uh, he knew I had come with a tough message, mm. and um, from my prime minister, Prime Minister Kretian, and uh, and then he said, "How does this work? What blood? What do Canadians eat? What do what? How do they think?" We threw you out. We expelled you, and you come back as peace envoy and senator from Canada. How does that work? How yeah. does that, in a short period, how does that work? You have to teach us Ugandans how to live together, right? And Ugandans do live together. But you know, he said, "How does that work? I have to find out the psyche of Canadians." You know, and he said, "I will have to next time I see 
Mr. Kretian at the Commonwealth Conference. I'm going to ask him, how can you appoint an expelled Ugandan to as a senator? So that was a (laughs) nice part for me. Yeah, so let's talk about how that did work. So you you came to Canada in, you said, mid-1970s, yeah? Yes. what was that experience? You had a young family, I think, at the time, and you married a young family. And what was that experience like? And there was about 6,000, I think, from Uganda who came to Canada in the end. Yes. So for me, uh, obviously, the beginning is was not pleasant because any country you go to, you have to settle. And coming from, a, uh, uh, you know, having some goals in life and having some dreams and then it's all shattered. You're starting again on the ground. And I had uh, qualified as a lawyer in England. I'd gone to Queen Mary College in London University. I'd attended that, and I'd also gone to Gray's Inn. And so uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer. And then immediately that dream was shattered because the Law Society gave me a very difficult time. Mm. But it wasn't all bad because I met this amazing man, Mr. Domes, the Honorable Thomas Dome. He was a former Supreme Court justice, and I was working as his Girl Friday. I don't know even if you know what a Girl Friday is, but somebody that I was desperate for a job. My husband couldn't work because, he, as I said, they had challenges in Uganda. And so he, uh, he came to me and said, I can't understand. You say you were a lawyer from England, from a reputable university. Why are you working as my Girl Friday? And I explained to him that the Law Society won't even give me forms, so I can't even get my qualifications assessed. So and he questioned me, he said, are you serious? Why would they do that? And I said, I don't know. And so he just walked to the Law Society, got me the forms, because he, he was a no-nonsense man. He just said, give me the forms right now. He gave me the form and said, I don't want you to do anything else. Fill this up tomorrow morning. I want it on my desk. And I, I did it. And uh, the next morning, he walked over again and said to them, okay, assess her qualifications now. Mm. And obviously, he was very well connected. So uh, in 10 days, I found out I had to do two exams. At that, that time, people who came from overseas did not have to go back to university. So I was lucky. Wow. I did the exams, and then I, I articled for him until he died. He was my law partner. That's why my law firm is Dom Jaffer Jaraj. It was my break of meeting him. And he opened so many doors for me. And so I did become a lawyer. I'm the first South Asian practicing lawyer in Canada. The floodgates opened. I mean, it sounds like you're very lucky in how you landed and it. it worked out very well for you. Um, I'm sure there were, there were difficulties too moving here. I mean, obviously it's a new country and you have to figure all that out. I mean, as a child, I remember there was a, this big influx of South Asians, which who I don't think any of us really knew they were Ugandan at the time. But um, there was racism. There was definitely, I, I remember slurs, racial slurs in classrooms and that kind of thing, very hurtful stuff. And, and, and what was that like and how, you know, how do you overcome that? From the day I came, I, I mean, I had racism from the Law Society. It was evident. You know, Mr. Dome said to me, they would never do this to a white student. And, you know, he created havoc. As I said to you, I found a guardian agent. Mm -hmm. He created havoc at the Law Society that this had happened. But, you know, the way we've been brought up by my father and mother, 
my mother has a big role I never give credit, is forget the noise around you. Like, uh, uh, you know, all the discriminatory acts that happen, you know, like I also ran to become a member of parliament. And when I would knock on doors and people would say not very nice things, because I ran in an almost white area, but I, I, it's my, my belief that you should run where you live. Mm-hmm. And so I ran in North Van, and at that time, not now, things were very difficult. But my father always taught us, forget the noise around you, just focus on your goals. How can you serve the community? There is no doubt that there is discrimination, there's racism. As soon as I could, I founded with some other women, uh, Immigrant Invisible Minority Women's Group, and our focus was on three issues, violence against women, racism, and English, Hmm. learning English. I, I genuinely believe that we have to know English. And so if we are going to survive in this country, we have to know English. So we had to take, with other immigrant women's organizations, the federal government court, uh, because the federal government would not provide English classes when immigrants came to this country to women, because they didn't think it was necessary. And so we, uh, during the time of Prime Minister Maruni, we had a case, and uh, just before we arrived at the court steps, it was settled. Because uh, I genuinely believe, as most people believe, that we have to know the English language. My argument was that, you know, even to borrow sugar from your neighbor, you have to speak English. So what do you mean a woman doesn't need to know English? We all, to integrate well into the community, we need English. And the second focus for my life was violence against women, which it still is, around the world. And that's why I was involved in Darfur and even here. And the hardest part is to uh, take on the violence within your general Mm -hmm. South Asian community. And people say, oh, you're washing dirty linen in the public. I don't care if there's violence within the family and it affects women and children. It doesn't matter which community. And so that was the second issue I worked with other women on. And in fact, then twice I became, once I became chair of violence, Task Force for BC, and once I was a member of the National Task Force on Violence Against Women, because I genuinely believe that yeah, you have to have, for a woman has to have English, a woman has to be free of violence, and then of course racism exists. But I always believe, like when I first joined the Liberal Party or when I first went to the courtrooms, it wasn't pleasant. You know, I try to forget that now, but it wasn't pleasant because the judge would ask me what language I interpreted. The judge would ask me uh, to not say anything because you're the accused. Because my law partner was very prominent, he had some notorious criminal clients, and the judge would mistake them for the lawyer and me for the accused. And then at time to time, I had to call my, my boss then, Mr. Dome, to say, please, I can't handle this judge anymore. And then he'd come and just sit there. Mm. And so... That's why I'm saying I had a guardian angel, which sadly many people don't. And so there definitely was racism within the law society. It doesn't exist anymore. Or within the court systems, maybe not so much now. And because, we, you know, it was a new, new phenomena to have a woman, South Asian yeah. woman. But I tell everybody that asks me, when a young person asks, I say, if, if you think there is a challenge in a com- com- uh, committee or where you're going, mm-hmm. don't, don't shun it 
because then it's you who are denied the opportunity. If I had uh, shunned the idea of not going to the law courtroom or not uh, uh, joining the Liberal Party because I was uncomfortable, then I would be the loser. And no. I have had so much to gain. And so my dad always used to say, face the difficult truth, go there, show your face. Uh, you know, 100% of it is to show up. And so in my life, I've always shown up. I fought. I was part of uh, Prime Minister Kretian's election team right. for, for becoming a leader. And so I've always shown up for the difficult tasks. Yeah. And I mean, everything you're describing is also an, an incredible example of what refugees bring to this country, to be honest, too. I mean, I mean, and thank you for all you've done. Because, and I think it's a, it's a helpful reminder that, that refugees aren't a burden, necessarily, or even at all. And they bring a richness to our own country that makes us a better place. But, so. but you know, David, uh, uh, genuinely, I mean this. Uh, yes, we bring, but if it is not allowed to flower, if we are not allowed to integrate, if we are not, as happens in other countries, then we cannot flourish. Mm. So the, the, the Canadians also had to be welcoming of us. Yes, we had some, I, I could write a book of all the teething pain I've had or all the challenges I've had, but in the end, you know, in the end, we, we are accepted, right? We are accepted and we are given to flourish, right? We are given to flourish. In many countries, that's not the case, right? In many countries, mm -hmm. that's not the case. And so Canadians have a very big role in our, even our flourishment, in our progress, mm -hmm. because they let us. But now, now I think Canadians have to really think about, you know, people are saying, oh, we're getting too many refugees, and I'm pulling my hair apart when I think of the Yemen people or Yemeni or the Afghani uh, that the, the doors are closing on. And obviously my first thought is, what if the door had closed on my family? But my second thought is, a country like Uganda can take two million refugees. And us, uh, such a prosperous country, such a big country, are nervous of getting a few hundred refugees. What's happening to us? We want to close the doors? And you know, if we close doors to refugees, it doesn't mean we will flourish. We will close doors to ideas, to people who can help us grow. We mustn't forget that by having more people come in, I'm not saying open the doors completely, but I'm saying this narrow-minded that we are starting to develop, we all need to think inside that what are we doing? If mm -hmm. we stop people from coming, those people, some, uh, many will die, but others will find refuge in many countries. You know, it's really funny for me. Quebec is funny in this way, and I know I'll get criticized for this. Sometimes they want refugees when they see how Ontario is flourishing, but then they want refugees or immigrants on their terms. Well, it doesn't work like that. You get the whole person. For example, it's really bothering me that they're taking on the issue of women's dressing. And the same Quebec feminists who fought for abortion, I fought with them, they drive me crazy now because they say not, you, you know, don't touch our body. Then how do we have a right to touch a Muslim woman's 
right to wear what she wants. A hijab. And that's the narrow-mindedness. And if I know with my colleagues, with my Quebec friends, I, I'm always arguing that, what are you doing? Because if you stop that woman from working in your schools, it means you, you force her to stay home. It means that then she becomes dependent on the men in her family. And that means that it leads to other social challenges. What mm. are you doing by shutting doors? You can only flourish as a country if we accept the whole person and not half the person. So my next question for you, and I think you've almost answered it here, is what, what lessons have we learned 50 years on from the, the Asian expulsion? And I mean, it's, it seems like there's lessons we're still needing to learn now. So I think... The biggest, and you know, forgive me for sounding, you know, like bragging, but uh, uh, I want to tell you that Ugandan Asians came with English. Uh, Many of them came with a good education and then a motivation to work hard, okay? And so uh, when, when refugees come here, they don't come here with the idea of, uh, wanting to take. They come with the idea of integrating and them flourishing and the country flourishing. And so the lesson we have to learn is that when people proudly, and I'm very, very appreciative to Canadians for this, it's not that I'm not, uh, when they say that we settled well, the lesson was that we settled well because we were allowed to settle well. We didn't have I was a refugee lawyer, and now I do a lot of work in the Senate with refugees. And I often just get so troubled. Think if we had come here as refugees, and then we had to wait for work permits for five years, what would have happened? We would have completely deteriorated. Ugandans arrived in Canada, and we had the right to work. We may have had challenges, but we had a right to work. Today, I have so many Yemen people that I'm helping, and Afghani, when they arrive here, you know, and with all COVID and all that nonsense, some people, I have one person, for 10 years, he's waiting for a work permit. How does that person survive? How does that person survive? And what do we do to that person's psyche? And, you know, we really need to examine that. What are we doing to a person when we don't give a simple work permit? They cannot go to work. And even yet, we've accepted them as a refugee. And so the, the lesson to learn is that once we welcome people to this country, we have to give them an opportunity to flourish with us and become part of our community and not to have the other. And I am extremely worried. Um, I am part of the Senate Human Rights Committee, and we are looking at the issue of Islamophobia and an increase of Islamophobia in our country. And I'm extremely worried that we are starting to build an other. That's not a Canadian value, because Mm -hmm. if once we start building the other, we are going to all suffer as a country. Yeah, that's incredibly true. Yeah, absolutely. I I just want to ask one more question, and it's a question I ask all of our guests on this program, and it's... uh, can you describe your favorite place in Canada? Well, obviously, I have to say Vancouver. Yeah. But my other favorite place in Canada is Quebec City. Mm-hmm. I go. I went with my children when they were very young because I took them to study French. And so I, I just love Quebec City. Mm-hmm. I just have such a, a, because of its uh, buildings 
and because of its character. People of Quebec have been very kind to me. My son and I and my daughter, we've spent a lot of time in Shawinigan, and we've spent a lot of time in Chikutumi. And during the referendum, my son worked in Chikutumi, you know, in, uh, whether Quebec would stay in Canada, because we love, we really love the people. And, uh, but my favorite second city is Quebec City. Fantastic. Well, Senator Mumbina Jaffer, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and this podcast, can you do us a big favor and give us a really glowing review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen? I know that sounds like a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works in podcasting, it's the single best way to ensure these interviews reach as wide an audience as possible. So thank you very much. It does make a difference. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just a fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. We left Simpson about June 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit or history is very strong. And we flew all over every inch of the country that it could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us. Well, I'm a first for Canada.